I'd like to introduce uh, tonight's speaker, Sebastian Malaby. Uh, Mr. Malaby is director of the Morris R. Greenberg Center for Geoeconomic Studies and a Paul A. Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, Mr. Malaby joined CFR from the Washington Post, where he served as a columnist and editorial board member. Before joining the Post in 1999, Mr. Malaby spent 13 years with The Economist. He is author of the best-selling the world's banker, and most recently of More Money Than God, Hedge Funds, and the Making of a New Elite. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Sebastian Malaby. Okay, uh, thanks for that introduction. Um, so this book, More Money Than God, I picked the title because, uh, well, it sounded good, but also because J.P. Morgan, the banker, when he died in 1913, he had 1.4 billion of today's dollars. And a lot of the characters who ran hedge funds who are in my book make 1.4 billion dollars in a single year. J.P. Morgan was known as Jupiter because of his godlike power over Wall Street, and if you get more money than Jupiter, I figure that's more money than God, that's a good enough excuse for the title. Um, I had an idea to write this book back in 2006, so it was before the financial crisis. It's not a financial crisis book, it's a history that starts in the 50s and tells you the story of hedge funds right from the 50s up to the Lehman Brothers crash. It's not a book about the crisis, but it leads me to a view of the crisis and of the regulatory response, and I'll get to that later. But there were kind of two reasons I wanted to do it. The first was that a lot of aspects of the US economy are very transparent, right? I mean, you can look it up on the internet, you can find out about it, and hedge funds seem to be the bastion of secrecy. So to an investigative writer, that was seductive. And the second thing was, it seemed to me that there was an interesting double standard in the American culture. As you can tell from my accent, I'm totally American myself. Uh, <laughs> but as an observer who's lived here for 15 years, uh, it did strike me that, on the one hand, Americans like entrepreneurs, and if four quantitative people set up um, a boutique company on the West Coast. It's probably doing software or something. And people like that. You know, it goes on the cover of a business magazine, they celebrate it. But if four quantitative people set up a boutique company on the East Coast, it's probably a hedge fund. And people don't like it. They're very suspicious of it. And as I thought about this cultural double standard, it struck me it might be even more interesting than just a double standard, because people think that hedge funds are the most unstable and toxic and dangerous part of the financial system. And as I looked into this subject, it struck me that actually the opposite might be true. They might be the least toxic, the most stabilizing part of the system. And so to the Washington Post op-ed writer, which is what I was at the time, the chance to say, hey guys, you think A, but if you look at the facts, you're going to wind up with conclusion B. That contrarian thing was the second thing that attracted to me, both the investigative thing and the contrarian thing. So the question is, four years later, you know, I've done the work, I've done the research, I've spent time talking to these characters who make more money than God. I've got document dumps from inside these hedge funds that explain to me exactly what they were doing at various key points in financial history. Where do my conclusions stand? And so on the thing about what did I discover, the first thing, the investigation part, here's where I can't resist answering the question by telling you some stories from the book, uh, which I always enjoy. So it starts with Alfred Winslow Jones, right, who's the first manager of a hedged fund. He sets it up in 1949, a long time before anyone realizes that there were hedge funds. And people didn't realize it because he did it in secret. He was a kind of under-the-radar sort of character. He'd uh, cut his teeth in clandestine ops, literally, uh, because he'd been sent by the State Department as a young man to Berlin in around 1930. And on arrival in Berlin, at a time when Hitler was rising to power, he wasn't in power yet, but it was already beginning, uh, he fell in love with a beautiful German anti-Nazi activist, and he married not only her, but her cause. And he started running missions into Britain and Switzerland to raise money for her movement. She was operating out of the maternity wing of a hospital to avoid detection. And he started to do this. He was undercover. He enrolled in the Marxist Workers' School in Berlin at one point, which was an interesting place for the father of future, the future father of, of hyper-capitalist hedge funds. Uh, and when he went to London at one point, the British authorities got suspicious of this quasi-Marxist. They sent a cable to New York, to Washington, to the authorities and said, you know, this guy, A.W. Jones, how dangerous is he? Uh, should we arrest him, this Marxist? So this was the character who started the first hedge fund. Later, the beautiful German wife uh, dumped him. Uh, he was already husband number two or three. And he went back, married an American, and said, honey, 
I think we should have a honeymoon. How about the front line of the civil war in Spain? So that's where they went, and they hung out with Ernest Hemingway, who gave him some Scotch whiskey, and with Dorothy Parker, who drank a lot of the whiskey and got too drunk. And, and in 1949, this guy, by now, he's 49 years old. He's settling down. He's got kids in New York. He wants to earn enough money to live in the style to which he would like to become accustomed. Uh, and so he starts a new kind of investment vehicle. And the characteristics of this investment vehicle are as follows. First of all, everybody who works in this company has to put his own savings in the fund. So if it screws up and loses money and blows up, it's not just the outside investors who lose, it's the inside people, the people who are making the decisions. They have skin in the game. So they have a big incentive not to mess up. Second characteristic is, if they make money on the upside, they keep one-fifth of it. And this gives them a very strong incentive to get an edge, to do better than everybody else, to hustle harder, to have a better idea. And I think that's why hedge funds down the years, ever since then, have been the most innovative and creative and sort of you know, new ideas-y uh, section of finance. And that's why they've become sort of the it boys of 21st century capitalism. Uh, third characteristic was the hedging. And that meant you bet on some stuff going up, right? You think General Motors is great, you buy it. But you also bet on other stuff to go down. So you think Ford is less well-managed than General Motors, you sell it. You bet that it's going to go down. So now you're betting up and down. You're hedged. You don't care whether the S&P 500 index goes up or down because you've hedged that out. You don't even care whether the car sector as a whole sells more vehicles next year or less vehicles. You don't have to have an opinion on that. All you have to have an opinion on is a specific thing about which of these two companies is better managed. And because you've been able to isolate a particular kind of bet and screened out the stuff you don't care about, you can magnify your exposure to that bet with the fourth characteristic of hedge funds, and that is the leverage, the borrowed money. Uh, and so A.W. Jones would always say he combines speculative means, that is the hedging and the leverage, uh, but for conservative ends, because the result of combining these two things was not actually all that dangerous. Uh, and so this was an investment platform, which then, down the years, could be applied to managing bonds, uh, doing macro trading and currencies. Uh, you could use it to uh, take all kinds of clever bets uh, on the difference between convertible bonds and the kind of the constituent parts of the convertible bond. You could be long one, short the other, if you thought the prices were out of whack. And you wouldn't have a view on whether the bond market as a whole was going north, south, left, or right. You just had a view that this was overpriced relative to that. So you could take these much more targeted bets in the financial markets. And so that was really a brilliant structure that A.W. Jones created. So he was both a fascinating character and an interesting innovator. Then I go on in the 70s to talk about Michael Steinhardt. Now, Michael Steinhardt was well-known partly just because of his temper. When he lost his temper, which was often, uh, he would start to go red around here in his face. It would kind of rise up uh, to the top until he was beetroot red the whole way up. And he would be yelling and screaming at people. He had a special intercom system such that when he yelled, you know, it kind of came down through the tubes through in, into the victim's sort of, you know, uh, workstation. But it would also be beamed out over to us. All the colleagues could kind of listen in on how this guy was being reamed out. And there was, of course, a famous episode where one guy who was working for Michael Steinhardt messed up, lost some money, came to the boss and said, boss, all I want to do is kill myself. And Michael Steinhardt said, can I watch? <laughs> so he was a tough guy to work for, uh, but he was also an interesting guy because he figured out a way uh, of making money very systematically all through the 70s and the 80s by exploiting the fact that the structure of the stock market had changed. It used to be that you know, retirement funds were not that big, right? Because in the 50s and 60s, they'd been set up after the Second World War. Not many people had contributed much yet, so there wasn't much capital to deploy. All of a sudden, by the 70s and 80s, these are very big chunks of money. So these guys need to buy and sell huge blocks of stock. And the traditional market makers on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange just didn't have the capital to say, yeah, I'll take 400,000 shares of IBM, I'll buy that right away. So there emerged a new business called the block trading business to provide the liquidity that these big savings institutions needed. So you had brokers like Goldman Sachs and Salomon Brothers you know, saying to the pension fund, yeah, I'll sell your 400,000 stocks, but they had to sell it to somebody. And Michael Steinhardt, because his dad was a compulsive, addictive gambler who kept on being hauled out of Las Vegas with yet more personal debts, Michael Steinhardt discovered he had some of the same DNA. And although he had been trained at Wharton as a classic analyst of stock prices, what he really liked was to sit in his office on the phone 
with a colleague, and they would chain smoke together. A colleague explained to me later when I was doing my interviews that um, Michael Steinhardt would smoke two cigarettes at once, but uh, the other guy smoked them faster, so you reckon he still had an edge in terms of uh, nicotine intake. Um, they were, you know, these guys are competitive people. They take this competition seriously. Okay, it's not to be laughed at. Uh, and, and Michael Steinhardt would, would, would take the call and say, 400,000 shares of IBM, yes, I buy, but you have to give me $1 discount on each share. And he would just get this buzz from making a decision involving millions of dollars of capital in one phone call. And because he was willing to take that kind of risk, Salomon Brothers, Oppenheimer, all those guys, the block traders, would call him first because that was the guy you could do the deal with. So then after a while, think about it. What happens next? Michael Steinhardt gets the first call because he's the guy to call, right? And so he knows that 400,000 shares of IBM are about to be sold. If he says, no, I won't buy it, he can put down the phone, pick up the other phone, and just start selling before the big pension fund has a chance to sell. He will front-run the trade, and as the pension fund follows and jams the price down, um, he will have sold already, then he can buy back at a profit uh, half an hour later. So the brokers know this. When they call Michael Steinhardt with the first call, and he says, today I want a $2 discount on each share, what are they going to say? No. He'll say, make my day. Uh, so, of course, you know, it was a symbiotic relationship, a collusive relationship between Michael Steinhardt, the buy-side guy, and these brokers, and they figured out how to split the profits and so forth and protect each other's back. Uh, but this was a system for just uh, coining money through the 70s and 80s. And the funny thing is that with my tape recorder on, I would go and see Michael Steinhardt repetitively in the research, and he would tell me these stories, and I checked afterwards that uh, with a securities lawyer, yes, the statute of limitations was indeed over. That's why he could talk so freely. Um, and I was also grateful that on one of my visits to see him in New York, he discovered that very day that he had personally lost money in the Bernie Madoff scandal. I was waiting for that redness effect to start, but it didn't, actually. He was very nice to me, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, after Steinhardt, let's see, I talk about a company called Commodities Corporation, set up in 1970 with the help of... Uh, uh, Paul Simelson, the economist who was the, one of the first Nobel Prize winners. And Simelson was uh, one of the people who would preach that markets were so efficient, they moved completely randomly, so investment managers just couldn't beat the market. Impossible to do. And uh, he testified in Congress once, he said, um, the average professional money manager would contribute more to society if he gave up and became a plumber. That's what he said publicly. Privately, with his money, he did something a bit different. He gave his money to a hedge fund called Commodities Corporation. He said, please, can you beat the market? And in fact, there was uh, one of his PhD students set this up with another guy who also has a PhD in economics. And they got hold of some very detailed uh, price data on how commodities prices move. And as they looked in these data very, very, very carefully, they could see that actually it's not true that prices move randomly. In time one, if they go up, they're more likely to go up again in time two. Not certain, of course, it's not 100% correlation. But let's say it's a 52% chance that if it went up on day one, it'll go up in day two. Or maybe it's went up in, day, in, in, in time one, which means three hours, in time two, the next three hours, more than 50% chance it's going to go up. So if you buy stuff that's going up and sell stuff that's going on, on average, you'll make money. So he programmed a computer to do this. It made a lot of money. Mike, uh, uh, Paul Samuelson put in extra money specifically into this program that was trading the opposite of his own theories, uh, and it just coined money. And after my book came out, uh, Larry Summers, the White House economics advisor, read the book, and uh, we, he got in touch with me, and he said that he wanted to have dinner, and he said, you know, Paul Samuelson was my uncle. I discovered a lot of stuff about my uncle thanks to your book. Thank you very much. But what you didn't know, Sebastian, what you didn't know is that when I was growing up, there was a cocoa wing in my home. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, you see, Uncle Paul, he'd invested in Commodities Corporation. Uncle Paul told my parents that this hedge fund that he was in had invested in cocoa, it was very bullish on cocoa, and that we should buy cocoa too. So my parents bought some cocoa, it went up for some period of time, then we sold it, made a ton of cash, and we built a new wing on our house, so we had the cocoa wing on our house <laughs> when I was growing up. But again, as always, as well as the funny stories, there's also a serious point here, which is that uh, I looked in the literature, the academic finance literature, to find one of the early papers uh, when the academics came around to the idea that prices don't move in a random walk. And when you look at this, this literature, one of the names in there is Scott Irwin, who was the author of two of the early papers published around 1986, 1987. So I called him up and I said, um, 
you know, how did you come to this conclusion? And it turned out that this academic had found exactly the same series of, 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 of price data on commodity markets that the hedge fund guys had found in 1970. So by looking at the same data, they reached the same conclusion. It's just that the practitioners who didn't announce their findings publicly had reached it about 16 years before uh, the academics published the same result. And that's actually a recurrent theme in my book, that often you know, somebody said the markets are efficient, but except that the people who know that they're not efficient are quietly sunning themselves on some nice beach uh, and not telling anyone about it. Uh, the inefficiencies in markets are often not uh, proclaimed. Uh, Renaissance Technologies, a fantastically successful quantitative fund, uh, for a while they told me uh, they were running a kind of weekly study group where they would read uh, finance journals uh, and they would look for ideas that they could actually trade on. And they just gave it up after some period of time because none of the ideas that were published turned out to be profitable when you built them into your computer. Meanwhile, they were discovering lots of ideas themselves, which are plenty profitable, uh, which is why their fund was up you know, 50%, 60% every year, and has been like that every year since 1990. Another uh, character I get into, uh, you can't avoid it if you're writing about hedge funds, is George Soros, uh, who is one of the most gloriously schizophrenic people I've ever had the pleasure of getting my, uh, my mind around. Um, uh, the schizophrenia comes out, for example, in a story about 1997, which is sort of the middle of the Asian financial crisis. Some of you may remember that. So in the Asian financial crisis, and I just set the scene, you've got the middle of the year, uh, Thailand's currency crashes through the floor. And uh, the Soros funds have bet that it will go down. In fact, they've almost induced it to go down. And they make tons of money on this, a billion dollars. And then after Thailand, Indonesia and Malaysia get into some trouble. And then it gets to November of 1997, and the Soros economist, based in Hong Kong, goes to South Korea. He shows up in South Korea, he visits a finance company, and he's sitting there in their boardroom, and he notices on the wall that there are these tombstone announcements, they're called, where you sort of announce, okay, we did financing for XYZ company. And he looks at XYZ on the wall, and he sees that several of the XYZs in these different announcements turn out to be Thai real estate companies. And he knows the Thai economy well. He knows that every single Thai real estate company is bust, gone, finished. So they're not paying what they owe to their creditors, which includes the very finance company sitting in, in South Korea. So he says to his host, how come you guys are still here if the, all these guys are not paying you back? And they kind of hum and ha, and then they admit, yeah, it's because the government uh, has passed us some money on the table to keep us afloat. Now, if you go around South Korea and you have four or five of these meetings and the answer is always the same, that they've gotten money under the table from the central bank, you pretty quickly conclude that the central bank's published foreign exchange reserves are fictitious. They've been committed secretly under the table uh, uh, without anyone being told. So here is this Soros guy, right? He's figured out that the foreign exchange reserves aren't actually there. Therefore, the currency will collapse if you attack it. So he sends the memo to New York, to Soros headquarters. He says, guys, here's the situation. We can make a billion dollars on this trade. And think about it. I mean, you know, he might get 5% of the billion dollars in his own bonus at the end of the year. 5% of 1 billion, $50 million. It's worth having. He's pretty excited. He sends this memo off to New York, and what he gets back is radio silence. Nothing. No word at all. They don't want to do it. He gets very agitated. He sends a second memo. Radio silence. And then... George Soros comes to South Korea. But he doesn't come to do a trade. He comes because he wants to advise the South Koreans on how to deal with speculators, because speculators are bad. And there's a red carpet treatment at the airport, there's a press conference, and he, he gives a nice press conference about how speculators can be fended off. And he goes to visit the president of South Korea in the Blue House, which is like their White House. And you know, he, you know, he, he has a good time being a, a global statesman. And then he goes back to the United States. He just decided that you know, he had two personalities, the speculator and the anti-speculator, and this was anti-speculator week. So I always thought to myself afterwards, you know, if I had been you know, the Soros economist, it was my job to going around looking for good trades. I found a mother of all trades, and my boss doesn't want to do it because he happens to have two personalities. How bitter would I have felt? And I think the answer is I would have been bitter enough that if a writer had come to me 10 years later and said, uh, do you know uh, anything about what was going on inside the Soros funds in 1997? I would have said, yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> I've got real-time notes, 200 pages of them. I will email you right now the PDFs, and we can talk as much as you want 
Uh, and so this was one of the lucky breaks I had in terms of massive document dumps from inside a hedge fund. Uh, same thing with uh, Juno Robertson's uh, famous Tiger Fund, which was operational between 1980 and 2000. Juno Robertson would write these very long letters to his partners about what he was up to, and I got the whole set. Um, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, a famous macro trader, I went, went to see him, and he, he gave me uh, sort of emails he'd written in the night uh, uh, during the time when uh, Lehman Brothers uh, was, was going down. Um, you know, going to see Renaissance Technologies, this quantitative fund I mentioned earlier was very interesting too. It started uh, with a guy called James Simons who worked for the government for the uh, Institute for Defense Analyses, which is a code-breaking operation, applying high-order mathematics to breaking codes. Uh, and in fact, um, one of his uh, fellow mathematicians in this research who was also at the Institute of uh, Defense Analyses, uh, later also worked for the same investment company, uh, Renaissance, and they basically applied the same mathematics used for breaking codes to breaking the code of the financial markets. And the idea was that in military uh, communications, you've got soldiers on the battlefield, right, and they're sending messages up to air cover. And if the enemy can see there's a message going up, even if they can't break the code, they know there's an infantry unit on the ground, that they can go and attack. So the code has to go up in a sea of statistical noise. So you can't even see there's any code going up. It has to be so wispy and translucent that, you, that the enemy doesn't know there's a, a signal. And these signals are called ghosts, apparently, in military communications. And the point that these guys were making is that the efficient market economists had looked at price data for a long time in financial markets, and they could just see a sea of statistical noise. They couldn't see the signal in the noise. So it was like the ghosts in uh, military communications. But the ghost hunters from the Institute for Defense Analysis, they had the right algorithms to find ghosts, and they applied the same mathematics to the finding of ghosts to, to financial markets. And lo and behold, they discovered the ghosts, and they started trading on these patterns that they found to be non-random. Uh, and that's how they, they built a system, or that's how they built the beginnings of the system uh, that uh, coined money for, for 20 years afterwards. They grafted into this... Um, uh, brain trust, uh, some wacky um, uh, sort of computer scientists were experts at, at, at machine translation, teaching computers how to translate from French into English. And when I went to see the Renaissance campus uh, up in Long Island, I think I'm the first writer to, to go there, um, there were these mirrors in the corner of the, of, of the passageways. And I said to them, why, why all these mirrors? And they said, yeah, yeah, because you know, one of our guys goes around on a unicycle. And so if he's coming down this way and you're coming this way, you've got to be able to see, otherwise he crashes into you, obviously. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. If there's people in unicycles, then I understand the mirrors, okay. <laughs> uh, but but these, these uni one of the unicyclists, um, his, his, his intellectual breakthrough had been, before he came to Renaissance, had been the idea that people had been teaching a computer to translate uh, using a grammar book, as if the computer was a, a middle schooler, and saying, okay, here's French, you know, there's feminine, there's masculine, blah, blah, blah. And his idea was, no, no, computers are not people. You ha they, have, they have infinite memory, pretty much, uh, but less reasoning. So you should teach them in a totally different way. And so, uh, you know, he went to Canada. He got the Canadian Hansard, the parliamentary record, which has millions of sentences of French and millions of sentences of English. And he just fed the two lots of language into the computer. And he told the computer to find the correlations between the French sentences and the English sentences. And out of this exercise, there arose the best translation program that had ever been uh, created. And when the uh, code breakers uh, at this hedge fund heard about this, they promptly hired these uh, translation experts. And again, they applied the same technology, the same intellectual approach uh, to decoding stock markets. It's the same idea. When you have markets, uh, just like if you put French into the computer, you don't give it any grammar, when you get markets, you can just ignore the fundamentals of the economy. You don't need to know about whether the, you know, whether the growth is going up or down. You just put in the data, and you look for correlations. Tell the computer to look for correlations. And that was the approach that, that's minted money for, for this particular hedge fund. So there's, in other words, a wealth of fascinating characters, I think, drawn to hedge funds. Because if you think about it, to be in a hedge fund, you have to believe that you know more than the market consensus. The market consensus is in the price. If you're going to bet that you're smarter than that, you better believe you're very smart. So there's lots of larger-than-life characters in this story, uh, and it's also intellectually very rich. But let me just circle back 
so as not to give you the full sort of, you know, long Fidel Castro version of the speech. Let's circle back to the beginning and, and, and answer the second thing I, I posed, which is sort of, you know, are hedge funds really stabilizing? And I think if you look at the financial crisis, which was taking place as I was doing my research, uh, the answer is yes, they are actually stabilizing. Because in 2007, when everybody else was losing money, hedge funds were up by 10%. They didn't lose. Even the hedge funds that were specialized in asset-backed securities, which would include subprime stuff, these guys were flat for the year. They dodged the bullet. Uh, in 2008, hedge funds were down, but they were down by half as much as the S&P 500 uh, index. Um, so they came through this crisis without, without causing uh, knock-on problems. And when they did fail, they weren't too big to fail. They didn't get bailed out by taxpayers. They were small enough to fail. And they didn't take any money from the taxpayers, not a single cent. And what's more, the creditors didn't lose either, because hedge funds are structured such that when they start to go wrong, they get wound up very quickly and they go out of business before the equity cushion is burnt through so that the creditors get 100 cents back on the dollar. And in terms of preventing contagion in the financial system, that's extremely healthy. And I think if you go back to what I was saying about A.W. Jones before, the idea that you have investors managing these funds who have skin in the game, they put their own money in the fund. If they blow up, it's their own savings. That's a very healthy factor for managing downside risk. And in the same way, uh, if they get one-fifth of the profits, that's a healthy thing for giving them the incentive to go out and do the hard work to find how to be against the crowd. So why did some of them bet successfully against subprime mortgages? It's not just because they're wacky. It's because they spent money on doing incredibly expensive and difficult research on figuring out what was going to happen with house prices and why the mortgage industrial complex was wrong. And that's what John Paulson did. If you go see John Paulson, he's not a wacky character, but he's a very serious guy, and he spent $2 million on, on getting the best data that there was, housing it in an outside computer system because his own workstations were too small to take all these data, hiring new guys to come in and do the analysis of all the data so that he could really develop the conviction you need uh, to be contrarian. So I think what it all boils down to is that, you know, we've got financial risk out there. And it's not going away. You know, currencies will go up and down. Interest rates will go up and down. And they're going to be difficult things to do. When you, when you think about absorbing financial risk and making financial bets, it's hard to get it right all the time. And so financiers will make mistakes and things will go wrong. And the question is, where do you want to put this risk? Do you want to put it in too big to fail institutions that taxpayers underwrite? Or do you want to put it in small enough to fail hedge funds, you know, which the taxpayers are not on the hook for? And to me, the answer is obvious. It's much healthier for all of us if the, if the risk is housed in these smaller companies. So I wish that regulators, as well as doing the necessary work of, of regulating the, the guys that messed up, they should pivot away from the train wreck which happened with the banks, the investment banks, the insurers, the money market funds, all those guys who got bailed out. Pivot away from that train wreck and look over here to the part of the system that actually worked, right? And be happy if more capital and more risk uh, flows into that part of the financial system. So I'll leave it there, and I'll be very happy to see if you've got questions and uh, get your feedback and answer, answer any concerns you have. Anecdotally, I know of a bunch of hedge funds that have blown up, and I have a friend myself who lost a million dollars in one. How, does, how, can your, how do you account for survivorship bias in your data? That's a good question. Okay, let me explain about survivorship bias in case there are people in the audience who don't know about it. So um, the idea here is that you know, hedge fund databases collect how well these funds are doing, but let's say one of them you know, blows up, it'll simply stop reporting. Okay, so the database doesn't collect the really bad episodes when, when you get a blow up. Um, there's another kind of bias, by the way, in hedge fund data, where, which is sort of the opposite. It's called backfill bias, which is you know, the reporting to the database is voluntary. And so people only start reporting uh, right after they've had a fantastic year. And when, they, when you report, um, typically the, the data collector says, okay, give me your last couple of years of results. And so if you only come to them after you've had two very good years of results, then you've got backfill bias where you've got these weirdly good years in the, in the data set. But there's a, a guy at uh, Yale called Roger Ibbotson um, who's done a series of papers, maybe you know them, um, and I think he does a pretty good job of correcting for backfill bias, correcting for survivorship bias. And he has a pretty big data set. I think it's like 8,000 hedge funds. Maybe it's okay, some, between six and 8,000 hedge funds. 
And uh, it goes for 15 years now, because he started in 95, it goes up to the end of 2009. So it includes the crisis, right? And then he looks at what does the average hedge fund return? And he looks at it net of fees, because the fees are very high in hedge funds. And what he finds is that you know, the average hedge fund in this data set is delivering three percentage points a year of uncorrelated performance uh, to the investors. So on average, that's pretty good. And of course you're right that there are lots of hedge funds that do go wrong. In even a good year, there's probably 800 hedge funds that go out of business. Uh, in like 2008, in the crisis, there was, I think, 1,500 uh, that went out. And so it's not a risk-free proposition to invest in hedge funds, just like it's not a risk-free uh, proposition to buy anything else. There's anybody who owns a mutual fund or, you know, you couldn't avoid losses in 2008, pretty much whatever you were in, uh, apart from treasuries, maybe. So, um, you know, it, you know there, are, there is risk, but my argument is that actually to investors, on average, it's a good deal if they are big, diversified investors. And secondly, that to the system, to the financial system, you know, you actually you want people who put a million dollars at risk to be at risk. And, you know, you'd rather have those losses absorbed by private investors than by taxpayers or by ordinary American households who, you know, in the, in the mortgage bust, you know, they take out mortgages they couldn't pay, and now almost one quarter of American households uh, have negative equity in their homes, which is a terrible situation. Enjoyed your, your discussion. I was, I can confess, I was a little bit bewildered. Um, first of all, your point in terms of comparing California or firms around here with um, the East Coast, I think for a lot of people, the question is whether they produce something. Um, I understand it's important for the, for the financial system, but it's very different if it's Apple and they're producing something, you know, or everyone can relate to that. Um, secondly, you, you make a little bit of a case, but most of the stuff that you talk about is, uh, uh, doesn't talk about the usefulness. I understand the downside. I'm a little perplexed why you said, well, they didn't take anything from the government because weren't they on the other side of a lot of the stuff? So if you were paying a lot of, down all of these debts, it was going to, a lot of, I thought it was going to John Paulson. Uh, um, so please uh, uh, fill me in on some of this stuff. The big question here is, so what the heck is the point of finance? I mean, you know, Apple makes something, we understand what it makes, that's good. But all these guys who shuffle paper in markets, I mean, you know, do we really need all this stuff? I mean, I think that's, that's the sort of meta question, right? And my answer is that you do actually need it. And let me just give you an example of why I think that. So let's just think about... Okay, an American exporting company, right? And the exporter is concerned that the dollar is going to get stronger uh, because then it's not going to be competitive. It won't be able to sell anything. Now you've got an American importer, right, down the block, and it's worried that the opposite will happen. Uh, the dollar will get weaker, imports will get more expensive, and now it can't import stuff and sell it to folks, right? So in one world, you have no financial traders, and so the, the, the importer and the exporter are both sitting with this risk, and they have to hold money in the bank as a buffer against the possibility that the dollar moves against them, and they need to be able to keep on in business, so they've got to have some savings stored up, right? So now if every company in America, for not just dollar risk, but all kinds of risks, effectively can't buy insurance, and so has to have a buffer of money in the bank, huge amounts of capital are being tied up in bank accounts as buffers, which means the cost of capital will go up, which means that every company in the country has trouble you know, opening new factories, creating new jobs, funding R&D, you name it. But if you have a financial market in which the guy who's worried about a weak dollar can trade against the guy who's worried about a strong dollar, and they meet in the market, and they trade with each other, the risk can cancel each other out. You can, you can get rid of this equal and opposing uh, risk. And to make that process work, you need not just sort of the two companies to trade, because it's like sort of, you know, if you were trying to um, sell your car uh, and there was no such thing as a website you could advertise it on, no newspaper you could advertise on, pretty difficult to sell the car, right? And you'd probably sell it at a big discount because you'd be so desperate to offload it. To make markets work, you need a lot of information, a lot of intermediaries who are kind of coming together and, and creating turnover so that it's liquid. Um, and that's essentially what professional speculators do. And so, I mean, you know, this is a big subject. I could go on about, you know, the various uses of finance, but that's just one illustration of the way that, in a funny way, you know, the guys who make stuff that you can drop on your foot um, are doing it better and more cheaply and so forth uh, because of the guys who are shuffling bits of paper. And so my contention is the best paper shufflers are the hedge fund guys.
I understand that hedge fund ban managers <clears throat> get special treatment with regards to U.S. tax law. Yep. And I wonder if you would explain that a bit and whether you think it's justified. Right. And if so, why? And if not, why not? The guy I mentioned at the beginning, A.W. Jones, he had this wacky tax lawyer called Dick Valentine. And Dick Valentine was the kind of guy you know, who was always thinking about you know, crazy ways of evading taxes by doing inverse upside-down structures in the Caribbean. And um, he would have these brainwaves and call his partner up on the weekend and start explaining this structure. And he would yammer on for 15 minutes before he realized he was talking to the, uh, to the other guy's son, who was seven. So he was a bit of an absent-minded professor guy. But he invented this thing that you're talking about, which is where if hedge fund people took their profits and they just said, you know, this isn't my pay, this is just a profit share from the capital gain in my fund, then they get taxed at the capital gains tax rate, which in the 60s, when this was being done, was just massively lower than the income tax rate. And even today, I think the capital gains rate is 15%. And the top income tax rate is 35% and will probably go up. So there's a big wedge there. And, and, and these hedge fund guys, by counting as capital gains, they're avoiding uh, the higher rate. Now, is that good? No, it's not good. It should stop. Because there's already tons of inequality in the society. Uh, I think hedge fund managers would carry on managing their hedge funds and doing their thing. If you tax them at 35% or 40%, it wouldn't stop them. Um, so the notion that they all go offshore, I, I just simply don't believe because I've hung out with them a lot. And it's basically about, for, you know, at a certain point, you've made enough money that it's not about more money because you're just going to give it away, frankly. I mean, it's about the juice you get, the intellectual juice, from going into the market and seeing if you're smarter than the market. That's what keeps these guys going. So I think you can easily raise the tax rates and they'll carry on doing what they're doing, and we ought to because of inequality and because we have a massive fiscal deficit. There was like a 60 Minutes uh, done on this a few years ago. In 1997, I think it was, there was a hedge fund that uh, did well for a few years and gave back most of its capital to the investors. And uh, it described itself as a huge vacuum cleaner uh, going around sucking up all the nickels as different securities adjust against each other to market norms. And then when push came to shove and, and it was crunch time, they had $3 billion back uh, in reserves and over a trillion dollars of exposure. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sure. Yeah. But it seemed that it did a lot to uh, really unnerve things there in, in around 97, in addition to the, uh, the Korean and the Thai uh, currency problems. So if, if hedge funds behave like this, uh, what's going to keep them from doing that again? Yeah, that's, so that's, that's, Steve, that's a, a, a good are... question. So the, the fund in question is called Long-Term Capital Management. And it went bust in uh, 1998. And it was picking up nickels, but it was picking up nickels in front of a bulldozer. And the bulldozer squashed it. Uh, and it does teach a lesson that hedge funds can be dangerous, that's for sure. Uh, because the Fed, you know, there was no taxpayer bailout, but the Fed was extremely worried. Actually, who bailed them out was a number of big investors themselves got together and all ponied up money. That's right. To, to save that hedge fund. Exactly. So is that what is required when you have a hedge fund get in a situation like that? You're going to have to call on the Soros's of the world to come in, uh, come up with money to, to bail it out in order to keep the whole financial system in, you know, stable like we did this last year even? Well, I think there is a difference between that episode and what happened in 2008. Because in 2008, the government came along with taxpayer money and bailed it out with our money. Whereas in 1998, this hedge fund was bailed out by the creditors, as you say, by the banks, which is a whole lot healthier in my book, because it means that ordinary people didn't have to pay for it. The guys who lent money stupidly had to pay for it. That's good. You know, responsibility should go with the people who lent irresponsibly. So we can depend on the banks to be there for these sort of problems that come up with hedge funds? Well, it's like they've been there for us the last couple of years so well? Um, all one can say is that through 60 years of history, there hasn't been a case where taxpayers bailed out a single hedge fund. Now, it could happen in the future. I mean, we don't know the future. But what we do know is that we have a history where insurance companies like AIG have been bailed out, Citigroup, a commercial bank, has been bailed out, uh, you know, Bestands uh, was bailed out, an investment bank, money market mutual funds uh, were backstopped with a government guarantee. So all these different kinds of financial actors have been bailed out by the taxpayers. And what's more, once you've been bailed out once, you're kind of going to get you're going to get drunk again because you think, oh my goodness, there's a safety net there. So if I go crazy again, they'll catch me again. Uh, 
So once you've been down that route, you know, moral hazard, once it's been created, is very difficult to expunge. And you know, hedge funds are not 100% safe. What I'm saying is they are safer than the alternative places to put, uh, to put, to put risk. Now, I do think that, that long-term capital management is a cautionary tale. And so in my conclusion to my book, I say that most hedge funds, we don't need to regulate them because they are small enough to fail and they're not causing a risk to the system. But when they get as big as long-term capital management was in terms of their total leverage exposure, then we should regulate them because then guess what? They look like an investment bank. They're as big as an investment bank. They should be regulated like an investment bank. Uh, I was going to ask about uh, your thoughts on regulation and the, the dark uh, money pool nature of hedge funds. The dark, sorry? The dark money pool nature of hedge funds, the secrecy. The aspects. secrecy, yeah, yeah. I mean, to some extent, you know, the secrecy is uh, natural because if you invent an idea and you're in the pharmaceutical industry, you have intellectual property protection under the law. If you invent an idea in the software industry, you can patent that as well, right? In finance, you can't. There is no such thing as, you can't go and apply for a, a patent in finance. Um, so you've got to be secret about it. You have to just keep your secret to yourself, and that's how you protect your intellectual property. So it's not unreasonable that these guys want to want to be a bit secretive, um, which is why it took me you know, almost four years to write this book. Because persuading them to talk to me was a work of some uh, networking and diplomacy. Um, but um, you know, there are various ideas. Now you should make these funds more transparent and so forth, but you should do it in some kind of anonymized way that doesn't infringe on the intellectual property. Uh, it's hard to know whether you can get good enough quality information out of the hedge funds and share it with other people that on the one hand doesn't mess up their intellectual property, on the other hand is detailed enough that it's useful to somebody else to understand where systemic risk might be building up. I, I kind of like to piggyback on the observation the gentleman that to, uh, to my right here. Uh, basically, you made a premise that uh, hedge funds are stabilizing the financial markets. Mm -hmm. And I like to take the view that if we t I have $3 and I can leverage this to $100, leverage $30, yeah. and we're talking like $3 billions, I can leverage this into a trillion dollars, whatever it is, uh, that could be quite a destabilizing uh, 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 force in this financial markets. So when you're talking the smaller funds, the small hedge funds, there is small money, but now you're talking about the trillions. And, you know, consider the United States economy, a uh, 14 trillion economy, and have some hedge funds uh, with a trillion dollars in, in assets. That could be quite a, quite a, a serious... Uh, yeah. Jacob, I, mean, thank you. I, I completely agree that uh, very leveraged financial companies, whether they are called uh, a hedge fund or whether they are Lehman Brothers, uh, these guys are destabilizing. But the fact is that uh, the average investment bank going into the crisis in 2008 uh, had leverage of around 25 to 30. The average hedge fund had leverage of around 2 to 3. They're just much less leveraged. The thing about long-term capital management was that they went spectacularly bust. Um, they had two Nobel Prize winners uh, working for them and some very good documentaries and books were done about them. And so then everybody thought, well, these guys stand for hedge funds. This is what the whole sector's like. In fact, they were a complete outlier in terms of the behavior of most of these funds. And the reason that most of them have leverage of two to three times, in other words, an order of magnitude less than the investment banks, is because they've got their own capital in it. They don't want to mess up. It's their own savings, right? So, of course, they make mistakes sometimes, and of course, they can blow up. And in fact, long-term capital management had uh, famously uh, booted out some of the outside capital to put more of their own partner's capital in, and then they blew up. <laughs> so having your own skin in the game is not a guarantee that you won't make a mistake. But it's better than the opposite. It's better than just fooling around with other people's money. As somebody said, uh, I think, at a meeting I was a bit earlier, um, you know, the, uh, if you looked at uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, before it went public, when it was the partners' private money, they were much more dependent on doing safe stuff for income. As soon as they went public and they had shareholders' money and the shareholders were some people they didn't know, they took a lot more risk. Uh, and I think that's not a coincidence. If it's, their, if it's your own money, uh, then you're going to be more careful. That's really my case. It's a, my case for hedge funds is that on a relative basis, one should prefer private partnerships where people are taking risk with their own cash. Lloyd Dixon. 
Uh, you talked about uh, the needing to regulate um, hedge funds when they became too big. What about when they become, um, they take on activities in many different um, uh, types of markets, like they become very broad, uh, like investment banks in, in being involved in many different kinds of products. Is there any argument there uh, that they would need to be um, more closely watched? Yeah. Part of the answer is that it happens automatically because, for example, if a hedge fund, uh, when, you know, a typical hedge fund is just managing money, right? It's just making calls on what to buy, what to sell. But then some of them set up market-making type operations or broker-dealers or investment bank uh, sections. And if they set up something which is regulated business, like broker-dealers, then they have to go to the SEC and be registered. So they automatically get into the regulatory net when they spread their wings into some of these other activities. But beyond that, I think it's worth noting that I do find it much less attractive when these companies start broadening. Because my whole point is, you know, these smallish focus companies that just do risk management, they tend to do risk management well. Once they branch out into all kinds of stuff, you get the kind of problem that you got with Bear Stearns, where Bear Stearns was, you know, a sort of uh, a broker uh, that then decided that it wanted to branch out into asset management uh, and also branch out into packaging mortgage securities. And so they just kind of grew this business very quickly, and they hired guys to run their hedge funds to build their asset management department, who shouldn't have been hired to manage hedge funds because they weren't qualified, but they were in such a rush to do it that they did it. And then they hired people over here to do mortgage origination, and they did it too quickly. And the management was just focused on five things at once. In other words, they weren't focused, and that's why they blew up. So I think these kind of multi-purpose financial supermarkets uh, are just less safe than, than single-purpose, more focused entities. And they also have less conflicts of interest. I believe I saw Paulson Investments, a holding company by IndyMac and First Federal, the two failed banks here. And as it's a private company, that information that used to be kind of open to the public through the SEC is privatized. So where is that heading with Sorry, that? can you just say the beginning of your question? Who bought it? Uh, Paulson. John Paulson? Mm -hmm. It looks like he's behind the holding company that bought two failed banks here in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. So where does it go from there as it becomes private, not public information in the banking industry? I have to admit, I didn't know about that transaction, but um, I mean, I think I can answer the question anyway, which is to say that, you know, disclosure by... Uh, mortgage companies is something that you can regulate you know, irrespective of who owns it. Um, and if the regulator wants to come along and say, okay, we want to see what kind of uh, mortgages you're, you're, you're pushing on people, they can do that. It doesn't matter who owns it. So it shouldn't make a difference, is my guess. Where do you see the future of hedge funds? Where you used to see a focus on whether it be fixed income or equity or currency trading. Now it seems like the line between hedge funds and private equity firms are blurring when you see Harbinger Capital setting up wireless networks. So where do we go from here? I think it's going to grow. I mean, hedge fund assets basically tripled in the last decade, and I think they can triple again in the next decade, primarily because the literature in, in, in academia on hedge fund performance is sufficiently positive that the consultants who advise retirement funds and university endowments know the literature, and they just know that the returns are pretty good, so they advise their clients to go into this stuff. So I think it's going to grow. And the question is, does it grow in a healthy way, where you basically hopefully keep a, a big ecosystem of smallish people who are focused on doing what they know how to do to manage a certain type of risk? Or does it kind of get sprawling? And the problem with quick growth, and I tell this story in my book with respect to Amaranth, you know, the hedge fund that blew up in 2006, is that when you have very fast-growing hedge funds, they get all this capital in, and they don't have the internal talent to manage it well, and that's when they get into trouble. So in the case of Amaranth, what happened was that you had a convertible arbitrage guy setting up this fund. He raises lots of money. He has different strategies going on, and he has a natural gas trader who's this Ferrari-driving young guy in Calgary, and he thinks this guy's a genius because he has a couple of good years, and Hurricane Katrina uh, drives natural gas prices up through the roof, and he makes incredible amounts of money. And so he just allows this guy in Calgary to take more and more risk uh, because he doesn't understand it, because the guy running the fund is a convertible art guy, not a natural gas guy. And so that's, that's the problem. When you, when you grow too quickly and you start sort of jumping into stuff you don't understand, you know, when Madeleine Albright um, 
you know, start setting up a hedge fund, which literally happened. Uh, you kind of wonder about the expertise of the people managing the funds. <laughs> so, so um, you know, uh, so, so I think it's an open question as to whether you get healthy growth or unhealthy growth. And I would rather that the regulators, instead of just sort of saying, you know, the SEC now says that all hedge funds above a certain rather small size have to register. That's what they say. Uh, and, you know, there's a chance that the Financial Stability Oversight Commission will start demanding disclosure from hedge funds. And it's kind of rather an undifferentiated approach. It would be better to say hedge funds can be good or they can go off in the wrong direction and become, you know, too unfocused. And we need to devise some incentives here that encourage the good kind of growth instead of just being kind of skeptical about the whole sector. Good evening. I really enjoyed your historical perspective on, on, on the field. Uh, I run a quant fund. And I just had a comment on, on what you said towards the end about hedge funds being better custodians, possibly being better custodians of money than large institutions because they outperform and have incentives to do so. Just want to make a comment that nowadays hedge funds technically and legally are, are unregulated private investment partnerships. And the only regulation that's imposed on us is limited to book and record keeping and cleanliness of your accounting and your annual audits. What the hedge fund can invest in is only governed by the private partnership among the partners. And there's absolutely anything on the earth you can do. If you're, and, and, and the documents, unfortunately, are written by a large in a way that permit us to do just about anything you want to do. You can have unlimited leverage. You can, have, you can buy pork bellies. You can sell buildings. You can invest in orange juice, coal, natural gas. And, and therefore, because there's no regulation, and most of it is secret because you don't want to arbitrage away your, your IP, um, it's very hard for the average investor to know what they're getting into. So it's, very, it's extremely risky. There's just no way to regulate this field. Right, but the question is, so let, let me just make a comparison with banks, right? Where we're, there's a new big effort, as you know, to, to regulate banks. We've had Basel I, didn't work. Basel II didn't work. Now we've got Basel III, okay? And the idea with Basel III is that we're going to come on to the banks and say, okay, you guys have a serial record of uh, committing atrocities on the taxpayers, so, um, so you need to hold more capital as a cushion, right? But the problem is capital in relation to what, okay? And the answer is, well, capital in relation to your assets. But you have to think about what kind of assets, because if you just hold treasuries as assets, which are safe, you should have a different amount of capital than if you're holding wacky orange juice futures or whatever it is. So it's got to be risk-weighted assets. And as soon as you say that, you can have an argument about what the risk is, how you define the risk. And that is why every time the government tries to devise rules to make banks hold the right amount of capital, it doesn't work. Because you can't predefine by looking from afar over the shoulder of the bank manager how risky his assets are. The bank manager knows the answer, but the guy regulating from a distance doesn't know. So the only thing I think that really works is for the manager himself to have an incentive not to blow it up, to have his own money in the fund. That's, that's the best way, because as you say, I mean, you know, probably your outside investors can't really tell what's going on. It's a complicated quant fund, and you're not going to tell them anyway because it's secret. So if I was doing due diligence on you, my first question would be, you know, how much of your liquid net worth is in the fund? And if the answer is less than 50%, I say goodbye. You know, if you're aligned with my incentives, and you've got a track record, I might trust you. 